0: Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Peter 5, 6 through 14. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Discipline yourselves, keep alert. Like a roaring lion, your adversary the devil prowls around you, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, steadfast in your faith, for you know that your brothers and sisters in all the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, whom I consider a faithful brother, I have written this short letter to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Your sister church in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just thank you um, for who you are, Lord, and that we can trust that your promises to us are true. You promised to be our mighty counselor and our prince of peace and to carry our anxieties, Lord, if we give them to you. I thank you that you sent your son to die for us, Lord, knowing that we didn't deserve any of it. I ask that our hearts, Lord, would be ready to receive the message today. Um, And that we'd be able to meditate on it the rest of your week In all these things I pray, amen
1: Well, good morning Oh, I'm echoing there a little bit Sorry, Brent, did I get too loud? Am I good? Okay (laughs) Awesome, good morning, thank you guys for being here Welcome to Aletheia Church Uh, My name is Kevin, I'm one of the pastors uh, Here at Aletheia We appreciate you guys being here to worship with us This morning. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open it up to the book of 1 Peter. Uh, It's in the New Testament, uh, towards the back. Um, If you don't have a Bible, feel free to to pull out your phone. We'll also have the text up on the screen for you this morning as uh, we finish up uh, this letter this morning. And so I was telling my wife this morning, I'm really, really proud. We went through 1 Peter in a little under three months, which, for those of you guys that have been here a while, you know that that is. a miracle only God could perform with me preaching consistently. And so uh, excited about that. Starting next Sunday, uh, we're going to do a three-week series um, preparing our hearts for Easter and kind of working through the implications of the claims that Jesus made, uh, some implications of the cross and the event that took place on Calvary, and then the implications of the resurrection um, heading into Easter Sunday. And if uh, you plan on being here and celebrating on Easter Sunday with us and you have not yet been baptized. Please see me after service. We're gonna, we have a few people stepping up, getting baptized that day, just declaring what God has done in their life and how Jesus has saved them. And we're super excited to hear their testimony of what God has done. And we would love to baptize you that morning as well as both an act of celebration and an act, an act of obedience towards Jesus. So um, I wanna finish our our time in First Peter this morning uh, by going back to the very first week uh, where we started studying this letter together, and so turn over to uh, 1 Peter chapter one, and I want to just read verses three through five to you. And I said to you that first Sunday that that these couple, these these three verses here were key to understanding Peter's thought process throughout the entire letter in First Peter. And so here's what he says. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Right. And so I said that these, these verses are Peter's driving point for his entire letter. And the, the theme that he kind of shares in those few verses is some things he's trying to get these churches that he's writing to to understand about who they are and what their identity is. I think all of us at times struggle with this idea of identity and who we are and, and what what our place is in the world and who we are as men, who we are as women, who we are as mothers, fathers, daughters, sons, workers, students, professors, whatever our particular vocation and sphere of influence may be, we wrestle with these questions consistently. And, and here's what Peter is saying to these churches who are in the midst of seasons of suffering, persecution, Rejection by their family, rejection by their government, uh, in their own communities. They once held places of honor and now are being uh, treated poorly and rejected. Here is Peter's main crux and point to them. He says this, You have been born again that you no longer live for the things that you once lived for, but you now live unto the God of the universe who spoke everything into existence. And you do that by the blood of Jesus Christ and because of his resurrection. And he says to them, you are born again, not to some false hope or some uh, weird theological or religious idea, but you are born born again to a living hope and that living hope is the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that that's what you are born again to and I talked that first Sunday that what Peter means by this is what drives them as a church now is different than what would have driven them in the past right we talk a lot about hope uh, Every four years, I have political candidates promising me all sorts of hope. And yet, what we see here is the same problems crop up year after year after year after year. And the type of hope that Peter is talking about is different than the hope that you might find in the career choice that you're looking for. It's a type of hope that's different from getting the right degree and getting into the school you want to for higher education. It's a hope that's better than good health. It's a hope that's better than having the perfect family. It's hope that's better than finding the right man or woman to spend the rest of your life with. And when the world looks to these things for hope, and when we look to these things for hope, and they're going well and they serve us, right, what is our emotional attitude? Happiness. Right? When we look for hope in these places and they fill up what we're looking for, we're happy. But when inevitably these created things fail us and don't go the way they want, what is our response? Despair. And Peter says, church, that is no longer you. You have a new life a new love a new hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead i said back in my first sermon that peter is calling upon the church to embrace their peculiarity their peculiarity as a people committed to the resurrection of jesus church do you remember that first sunday where i said look there are just some things that we believe that the world is going to look at us and think we're crazy. We believe that God's Son was born of a virgin in the flesh. We believe that God's Son was sent to the cross on our behalf to satisfy the wrath and judgment of God for our sin and rebellion. Then we believe that that same man was buried in a tomb and rose from the dead three days later and is now ascended into heaven, ruling with the Father. Guys, there is no way you can spin that story to a naturalist that's going to make sense to them. It just can't be done. And so instead of trying to do it, right? live your life with hope because that's going to speak better than any apologetic you could ever come up with. If you live with a living hope in the resurrection of Jesus, there is no argument that you can make that would be a better testimony than living with hope unto the resurrected Christ. And so Peter's whole point throughout this letter is embrace the truth of the resurrection because the resurrection is a fact of human history. Right? I said that first week. Do you want to know how Christianity could have been stopped in its tracks? If the Jewish authorities could have just produced a body, this would have all been over with. Guess what they couldn't do? They couldn't produce a body. You want to know why? It was gone, (laughs) right? He had ascended into heaven, right? If you go to Israel, you can go to the site where many believe that Jesus' tomb was. And guess what is in that tomb? Nothing. It's empty, right? Because he's risen from the dead, right? Now, some people say, oh, you know, people stole the body. Here to tell you, right, there were armed Roman guards outside that tomb. Didn't happen. You expect that, and you know who they say stole the body? Jesus' disciples. Anybody here ever read the gospel accounts? (laughs) Do those seem like the type of men who are going to take on Roman guards? No. Right, Peter, just three days earlier, what did he do when Jesus was arrested? Denied him. I don't even know who that guy is. So you expect me to believe that the same man who wouldn't even say that he knew who Jesus was three days earlier is all of a sudden gonna strike up the courage to take on some Roman guards, then move a couple ton stone rock away from a tomb to remove the body in some elaborate coup? And many of those same men Who when Jesus went to the cross wouldn't even show up at his crucifixion were willing to later die claiming that they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. And as C.S. Lewis says, many people will die for a lie if they don't know that it's a lie. But if you know it's a lie, how many of you are willing to die for a lie that you know for sure is a lie? Not one hand raised in this room. And Peter says, this is the hope that we have in the resurrection of Jesus and that hope is that we are now reconciled to God, that Jesus, our King, is ruling, that we have an inheritance waiting for us that is imperishable, and that we are guarded by God's power because of the blood of Jesus. And then throughout the letter, he's gonna say that even if we suffer in the short term, it is gain in the long term for the cause and the glory of Christ. Right, this entire let- letter is trying to drive home this point that our living hope the resurrected Jesus, gives us power to live today in the midst of suffering and persecution. That we can do that well. And so here's what I want to do. I want to go through verses 12 through 14 really quickly just so you understand how Peter is finishing out that letter. And then I want to focus in the majority of our time this morning on verses 6 through 11. So if you look at verses 12 through 14, here's what Peter says. He says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon... Who was likewise chosen sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And so, so this is what, you know, this is how Peter is kind of finishing his letter, right? He just says, Hey, I'm sending this letter to you by Sylvanus, right? Sylvanus is one of uh, Peter's scribes. He's a guy that hung out with Peter, and he's the one that, that wrote this letter, right? And he just says, Hey, Sylvanus is writing this by my dictation to encourage you to encourage you to remain faithful and trust in Jesus. And then he goes on to say that Babylon is writing to them as well. That likely refers to the church at Rome. And then he goes on to say John Mark. Right? Anybody ever read the Gospel of Mark? Likely the same guy who was a disciple of Peter who wrote that gospel account according to what Peter had witnessed as an eyewitness to the resurrection. Right? And he just says to them, here's my hope for you, church. Peace to you all who are in Christ. that's what he desires for these churches that are suffering in the midst of persecution, that they would experience the peace that only comes through the grace of God. And then today what we're going to see in verses 6 through 11 is Peter's going to share with these churches two ways in which our living hope as followers of Jesus empowers us to live in the midst of persecution and suffering that there's two specific ways that that happen, and, and it's these, right? The first one is this, that Jesus's resurrection gives us hope instead of worry and fear, and that Jesus's resurrection gives us power to resist spiritual warfare. Those are going to be the two big things we see in verses 6 through 11 this morning. So I'm going to pray that God would help us to see that and know that to be true, and that he would move in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, what a gift your word is to us. What great hope and encouragement it brings to our hearts. Father, we are quick to forget and slow to remember the promises you have given us. So, Father, I thank you for your word to us. And I ask that it would do what only it can do, that through your Holy Spirit you might renew our weary souls Lord, if there's anyone in here this morning who is suffering with anxiety or fear or worry, Lord, might you minister to us this morning through your word and help us to trust in the living hope of Jesus and his resurrection. Father, meet us here this morning, and I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this first first point that Peter's going to drive home this morning, right, that that Jesus' resurrection gives us hope and replaces worry and fear. It comes from verses 6 and 7. Let me read them to you. It says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. All right, so I want you guys to participate in an exercise with me here for a minute. Who here has ever struggled with anxiety or fear at some point in their life? All right, look around, guys. You're not alone. See that? Okay. Now, I want you to pause and think for a minute about the last time you were really worried or really experienced some anxiety. So just, you know, you can close your eyes, whatever you need to do to just kind of visualize this, but I want you to think about what caused that fear or worry for a minute and what was driving that anxiety. Okay, everybody good? Have your mind set on what that was? Okay, now I want you to think about this for a second. And I could be wrong on this, but ultimately, I think the scriptures teach us that fear and worry are vices we suffer from because of our idol of self-control. I'm going to say that again. I believe that the vices of fear and worry are vices we suffer from because of our idol of self-control and our desire to be Lord over our own lives. And bear with me for a minute, but when I, when I think about the last time I was in a state of real fear and real worry and real anxiety to the point where it was paralyzing was about two years ago, right? Jackie and myself and the other elders in the church were in Orlando. We had gone for a retreat for some long-term vision and, and planning and praying for the future of the church, and uh, the other elders and I had done what all really spiritual men do on an elder retreat, and we went and played golf in the morning. And um, no one laughed at that. I thought it was gonna be way funnier, but I apologize, <laughs> right? Uh, so we went and played some golf, and on our way back to, to the resort, we were ready to sit down and do some, some playing. And I get a call as we're pulling into the parking lot of the resort, Josiah's having a seizure. And so I, I rush into the resort, and I get upstairs, and he's still, he's still in the middle of the this seizure. The is lasting much longer than his normal ones are. Um, so the, the EMTs rush in, they take him, they take him off to the hospital. Jackie hops in the ambulance with him, and I, I get taken to the ambulance by one of the other elders. And I get there, and by the time I get to this hospital that they've taken him to, and Orlando's not easy to get around, I don't know why anyone would ever want to live there, I love you guys, but... Right, we get there, and I get to this hospital, this emergency room and Ce- celebration point, or whatever they call it, celebration? celebration, just celebration. right? I think Disney made that town itself. OK, So we get to celebration, and, and this, this hospital is, is clearly not equipped to deal with young children. It's not their specialty. And they just keep medicating my kid, and he just keeps seizing. And, he, and they, just, they, they try something else, and he keeps seizing. And it's getting worse and worse. And guys, I just shut down. Completely shut down. At, at one point, I must have looked like a ghost. Jackie turned to me and said, you're freaking me out. Get out. You're making it worse. I couldn't do anything. And we get through that situation, and finally they get the seizures to stop and whatever else. And finally, after I, I've calmed down, like some just reality hits me. Right? Why was I so paralyzed with fear and worry in that situation well partially I mean I love my son right right I I was seeing him suffer and I was seeing nothing work and and it was terrible but what's crazy about that story was there anything I could have done to have fixed what Josiah was going through no not a medical doctor I have no ability to stop his seizures on the spot, and yet in my desire to control fixing my son's epilepsy, I refuse to rest and trust in the promises of God, and guess what that led to for me? Even more suffering and anxiety. See, this is the great lie that we believe when we think we are Lord over our own lives. We think we can control outcomes and situations until we finally can't. And God mercifully rips that idol away from us. And as Peter writes to these churches who are in the midst of suffering and persecution, he says, guys, the only way you combat the idol of self-control and the vices of fear and worry is to do this, humble yourselves. That's it. That the only action that God prescribes to us is to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now guys, I think we know enough to know that humility is not a popular character trait that we talk about. Now we love false humility, but humility in and of itself is not a character trait that we tend to want to naturally ascribe to. And yet, humility is a major theme throughout God's word. It's, it's, I mean, it's littered throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament that God calls his people to be different. And that being different is a call to walk in humility towards him. And especially in Peter's letter, he talks about humility all throughout this letter. I'm going to throw a slide up there for you guys. There's three different ways that Peter says to us we're to be walking humbly, even in the midst of pain and suffering and persecution. Right? Do you guys remember some of these? Right? He says, uh, you know, first and foremost that one of the ways we walk with humility is in the way we walk in humility towards earthly authority. Right? He says in 1 Peter chapter two that we're su- supposed to submit and walk humbly before even an ungodly government, that God has placed them in authority over us and that we walk humbly in submission towards them. He goes on to say in chapter five, we saw this last week, that we submit to church leadership, that we submit to leaders that God has placed in our church and that these elders are called by God to lead the local church and that we should humbly respond to them and then he says even this morning in verse six that we humble ourselves before who the mighty hand of god that we submit to him and his word and what he says to us even if we don't like it he goes on to say that we don't just submit to authority but we also submit in our roles that god calls us to how many of you guys are married or want to be married one day most of the room, right? God says in, 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 through Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3 that we submit in marriage, that wives and husbands submit in various ways, that wives submit to their husbands, that men submit to the care of their wives as the weaker vessel, right? Or as Paul says, that husbands are willing to submit themselves even to the point of death like Jesus did, that a godly marriage is one filled with not lording things over one another, but with a husband and a wife who submit to one another and love one another as to the Lord. He go, Peter goes on to say that we don't just submit in marriage, but we also submit in our jobs. Right in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 20, he says, Be subject to your masters. It's really easy to submit ourselves to a good boss. How many of you guys want to submit yourself to a bad boss? And yet Peter says, no, we walk humbly and we submit ourselves even to bad management and bosses because what happens is God uses that to glorify Jesus. Amen. And then guys, I don't need to give just one reference to this last one because literally the entire letter of First Peter is about this, but that we walk humbly in the midst of suffering that we look at suffering as a blessing given by God so we might honor him. We see then this major theme throughout Peter's letter that humility is a tool that God graces us with, that we can use to put the idol of self-control and self-reliance to death. so that we might instead submit to the mighty hand of God because God knows that what we need the most is not more ability, not more power, not more skills, not more tools, but him. Jesus, our living hope. And that when he kills that idol of self-control and self-reliance, he drives us to a deeper reliance upon Jesus, the living hope. Guys, you and I need more of Jesus, not more of ourselves. We need him, not our abilities. We need him, not our education. We need him, not our skills. We need him, not our money. And as Charles Spurgeon says in his morning and evening devotional, God comes into our heart and he finds it full. And he begins to break that full heart full of comforts and make it empty. Then, when it is empty, there is room for more grace. The humbler a man lies, the more comfort he will always have because he will be more fitted to receive the grace of God. As we rely less on our own ability control and instead humble ourselves, we then see more God's power and ability to do what only he can do, which is bestow unmerited grace in our lives. And Peter mentions in these two verses two ways in which humbling ourselves before Jesus practically gives us hope that it practically allows us to see that Jesus is better than we are. He says this first, that if we humble ourselves, that in humbling ourselves, God works through that and displays the power of God in our lives. Right? He says that if we humble ourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he might exalt you. Right? When he says mighty hand of God there, he is reminding the readers all the way back to, to go back to the book of Exodus. And to remember that when God's people were enslaved in Egypt, who delivered them? God. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart time and time and time again? God did. And yet, what happened to the nation of Israel? They were delivered under God's mighty hand. There was nothing about the nation of Israel that they rebelled and led themselves out. As a matter of fact, when you read that story, what did they try to do once they were out in the desert? They tried to go back. Like, oh my gosh, Moses, what have you done? It was better for us to go there than to suffer and die out here. And what did God do? He casually parted the Red Sea and led them across and then destroyed Pharaoh's army as they chased them. right? That the mighty hand of God was far better than any control or power that the nation of Israel had. And as the nation of Israel cried out in their suffering in the beginning of the book of Exodus, God hears them and delivers by his power. And Peter says, church, if you humble yourself, you will experience the same power of God to deliver. And you will see a greater worship of Jesus. Now, not only when we humble ourselves is the power of God put on display, but also we see the love of God put on display. He goes on to say in verse seven, casting all your anxieties on him, because why? He cares for you. Now here's the reality, guys. When we're in the midst of fear and worry and suffering, is it hard sometimes to believe that God cares? It is, I I, I will freely admit that. It, it, It is sometimes hard to remind myself to fight for joy and see that God cares and God loves in the midst of suffering. And yet, in Romans 5, 8, Right? We're, we're given this beautiful promise by Paul right? that we can always know that God cares and loves us because while we were yet sinners, God demonstrated his own love towards you and I by sending Christ to die for us. Church, if you are in Christ, you can take it to the bank. God loves you because Christ died for you and for me. And as we humble ourselves and we cast our worries and our fears and our anxieties on him who has the power to overcome them, we're also met with the love of God to see him meet us in those places. The resurrection of Jesus is where God confirms to us his power and his love toward us. This means we can trust him. And so we lay down our anxiety and our fears and self-control, and instead we choose to hope in the promises of God revealed to us in his word. Humbly, we trust him instead of ourselves, even in the midst of suffering. And so Jesus' resurrection gives us hope instead of worry or fear. And we are humbled by his love and his power towards us. Some of you guys who are newer believers in here, this is gonna be a newer concept to you. One of the, one of the things I used to love that my pastor up in Virginia would always do is whenever he was sharing the gospel with somebody, he would talk to them. And then whoever who was with him, whether it was at church or uh, like a neighbor friend, or even we would go out on campus and just try to strike up conversations with people and share the gospel with them, towards the end of our time sharing, he would always look at whoever was with him and he would just say, how long, tell this person, share your story about how Jesus saved you. And he'd give us just a second to share what God had done in our lives and how he had rescued us. And then he would always say, how long have you been a believer? You know, some, you know, some people would be at six months, a couple weeks, some people would be a couple years, but he'd always say that. And, he, and then he would ask us, have you seen God's faithfulness since you have seen Jesus save you. And we were always say, yeah, yeah, I've seen it. And we, we could share little ways to that person we were witnessing to, ways in which we saw God's faithfulness. And then I'd always love what he would say next. He would just say, and for me, I've been a follower of Jesus for 50 years. I'm not guessing whether this is real anymore. I've seen God's love and I've seen God's power even in the midst of suffering enough times now. I don't need apologetics. I've seen God move in my life. He's real, he's alive, he's active, and he died for you. And man, what a beautiful testimony that was. Nothing about his own life, nothing about what he'd overcome, just a testimony to the power and love of God's faithfulness to him over the course of his life. So Peter says the first way we battle suffering and fear and anxiety is to see that Jesus' resurrection gives us hope to replace worry and fear. But the second thing we're gonna see is this. Peter's gonna remind these churches that Jesus' resurrection gives us power to resist spiritual warfare. All right, look at verses eight and nine. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Peter gives two of action items for us here to reflect on as we reflect on the resurrection on how he can change our lives and move us from fear to hope even in the midst of spiritual warfare so we're we're no longer talking about our own fear and anxieties but we're talking about spiritual warfare he says to be sober-minded right which is this idea of being calm and collected in spirit right? Basically, if I could translate that in 2019, don't freak out. God's got this. He's got this under control. The second thing he says to do is this, be watchful. And the Greek there, that has this, this idea of literally staying awake and giving strict attention to what is going on in your life. Now, let me pause and, and, and just Open this up for a second. Why would Paul in the excuse me Paul Peter in the midst of these churches suffering persecution and, and suffering and struggling with fear and anxiety? Why would he all of a sudden, when he even starts talking about spiritual warfare, move on to say, hey, be sober-minded and watchful? He says, it's because your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan, according to Peter, attempts to use fear and worry to devour us and rob us of our hope in Christ. Guys, Satan has one goal. Rob God of his glory and your joy in him. That's all he's seeking to do. And guys, here's the truth about spiritual warfare. It's real. I know that we are a, a culture and society saturated in naturalism. But spiritual warfare is a real thing and a real reality. And Peter makes this abundantly clear that Satan and his army of fallen angels are at work. In this world, seeking to hinder the church and to rob us of hope in Christ. I found, just by looking up the word Satan in a lexicon this past week, I found 35 references to Satan in the New Testament and three in the Old Testament. And that's just for the word Satan, which means adversary. But Satan's not only referred to or the devil's not only referred to by that name in scripture. You'll find him referenced numerous other times in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Many believe that even all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 that the serpent is a manifestation of Satan before Eve. And what does the serpent do in the garden of Eden? He talks to Eve. And he sows seeds of distrust, ultimately robbing Adam and Eve of joy in the Father. He seeks to devour. And that's exactly what he does. Some of you guys may know that C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors. And one of my favorite books that he's written is a, is a book called The Screwtape Letters. If any of you guys have been here for any amount of time. I, I reference that book in sermons all the time. And, and, it, and it is not scripture, okay? So if any of you guys go home to read that book afterwards and you're like, oh man, this is a great uh, systematic theology book on angels and demons. No. It is meant to be a work of fiction and allegory, but I think there's a lot of things that you can take away from it. And, and, and one of the things that C.S. Lewis mentions in the screw Tape letters is that he, he believes that there are two ways in which we can err as Christians, in regards to how we approach spiritual warfare. The first is this, that we are ignorant to its existence and don't believe in it. And the second way is this, that we're so paralyzed by the power of Satan and demons that we never do anything because we're scared of them. And I love this one passage. I'm going to read it to you. So the screw Tape Letters is basically a high-level demon writing to a lower level demon on how to hinder and rob a new believer of their joy in christ that's the premise of the letter that a higher level demon is teaching and training and discipling a lower level demon on how to rob a new follower of jesus of their joy in christ and this is what he says right the demon that he's writing to is named wormwood and he says this my dear wormwood I wonder you should ask me whether it is essential to keep the patient, that's what he refers to the new believer as, in ignorance of your own existence. That question, at least for the present phase of the struggle, has been answered for us by the high command, referring to Satan. Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. Of course, this has not always been so. We are really faced with a cruel dilemma. When the humans disbelieve in our existence, we lose all the pleasing results of direct terrorism, and we make no magicians. On the other hand, when they believe in us, we cannot make them materialists and skeptics. Guys, does that second line sound like our culture? Either way, Satan seeks to devour constantly. How so? By calling into question God's power. Think about the last time you suffered. Did you ever question whether God was able to deliver you? Did you question whether God was good enough? Strong enough? And if Satan's not questioning God's power in the midst of suffering, he's having you question God's love. In the midst of suffering, how could God allow this? How could a good God allow suffering? How could a good God allow us to experience this? This strategy leads to Satan robbing us and devouring our joy and hope in God. When we doubt God's goodness, we worry. When we doubt God's power and love for us, we instead choose worry. When we worry, we seek to control and therefore avoid suffering. As we've seen throughout 1 Peter, suffering is actually God's grace to us to make us more like Jesus and to drive us to trust him more. When we try to avoid suffering, guess what? We don't ever prepare for it, biblically. And when we aren't prepared to suffer well, guess what inevitably ends up happening? We end up suffering, and then guess what? We're not ready to endure it. We're not ready to resist. We're not ready to stand to it. And we become devoured. But... Because of the resurrection, because of our living hope, Jesus, what does Peter say we can do in the face of spiritual warfare? Resist him. Firm in faith, knowing that suffering happens everywhere. And when we move from worrying about spiritual warfare and suffering to embracing it, we allow the living hope that we have in Christ to drive us to what we know to be true, that God is powerful. And at the cross, he defeated sin and death, and then he made a mockery of it three days later when he rose from the grave. And that God loves us because at the cross, he died on my behalf He died for my treason, my sin, my rebellion in my place. And he gave to me Christ's righteousness. And when he rose from the dead, he displayed that God the Father had accepted Christ's payment for my sin. And guess what happens as we rest by faith and that hope? We are humbled, and Jesus is magnified. So here's what I want to leave us with today, guys. As we've worked through this letter together, wrestling with suffering and persecution, and how we might do that well to the glory of God, I want us to consider how Peter finishes in verses 10 and 11. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever Guys, I, I don't know what all, all of us are going through this morning. I don't. I know some of you well enough to know some of the things that are going on in your lives. Family members battling cancer. School not going the way you thought it would. Struggling to find work, pay bills, raise Children. money issues, job issues, relationship issues, and sometimes it feels like there's no end in sight. Sometimes it feels like it's hopeless. And here's what I'm not going to promise you this morning. I'm not going to promise if you do a list of just a few things that you'll see immediate relief. There are there are pastors and churches that will peddle that to you and it is not the gospel. It's not If God brings relief, yes and amen. But He may not. It may be His perfect will for you to suffer. But here's what I can promise because of what God's Word says here that if you let the living hope of the resurrected Christ sustain you in your suffering, you will have joy because the promises that are to come are far greater than a life of ease here. He says there that after you have suffered a little while, either a short time or the totality of this life, because guys, I think the average age right now for a male is 76, I think women is 81. Congratulations, ladies. I don't know why that is. It says, after you have suffered a little while, God who has called you to his eternal glory will restore, will confirm, will strengthen, and will establish you, whether in this life and the next. And guys, 76 years is a small amount of time compared to eternity with him. So small compared to eternity standing before your Lord and Savior worshiping him and guys I heard it said at the men's retreat this past weekend that that the promises that God makes for eternity are no more pain no more suffering no more sin and as Tim said to us I that he couldn't even imagine that and I was, like, I was like I can't imagine that either I can't imagine a world without sin I can't imagine a world without suffering but I know what it's better than better than this one. I can't even fathom that level of goodness. And yet the promises of God is that he will restore, confirm, strengthen and establish. And so here's the question. Will we trust him? Will we choose to humble ourselves, casting our worry and fear and anxiety on him who is able or will we resist the lies and doubts that Satan hurls at us, or will we choose to go our own way? Will we choose to go the way of self? Or will we choose to go the way of trusting in God? Brothers and sisters, we have a living hope. A resurrected king who suffered in our place, who rules and reigns at the right hand of God, might we trust him and pray that God would help us to trust him more we can go ahead and have the worship team come back up on stage and uh, I'm going to invite the elders and their wives to surround the room and here's what I'm going to ask us to do during this time we're going to take some time to just pray and respond to God's word this morning to respond to to God's call through Peter, to humble ourselves and resist Satan. And we do that by placing our faith and trust in the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. And so if you're not a Christian here this morning, that's where I would tell you to start. That this morning, by repenting of your sins, and trusting that Jesus Christ came, lived, and died for you. That you can place your faith and trust in the resurrected Christ for the forgiveness of sins and to be restored to God the Father, our Creator. If you want to talk to one of the elders about that, you can do that. If you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, and you are suffering with some, something, maybe it's cancer, maybe it's a terrible relationship maybe it's family issues maybe it's job issues maybe it's money issues I don't, I don't know come see one of the elders if you're comfortable and they will pray for you they will pray that God would loom large in your life and that the Holy Spirit might help you to be humbled and trust in Him because that is where hope is Hope is in him and him alone. And might you sit there this morning as we worship and sing, and might you confess your sin before God. If you have not humbled yourself before him and you've been instead by self-control worrying and running to fear, confess that as sin. It's rebellious, it's evil, and it's robbing you of joy in Christ. Confess it as sin, and God is faithful to forgive. And as you confess that to him, you can either come up here and pray with one of the elders or you can joyfully come up and take communion if you were a follower and believer of Jesus Christ. And as you take communion, you can worship taking the bread and taking the juice which represents Christ's flesh and blood poured out for you and you can rejoice because Christ willingly gave up his life for you. And might you see communion not as a time and an act of penance, but it's an act of holy worship towards a God who gave his only son for you. And might we leave here today encouraged, not because of worship music, not because we got to see our friends, not because we heard a sermon, but because the hope of the resurrected Christ looms large in our hearts and drives us to a greater worship of Jesus. Let's ask God to do what only he can do, which is glorify himself in our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you that the promises of your word are good and true. Father, thank you that even if we have run to at times the idols of self-control and self-reliance and we've experienced fear and anxiety, that you promise in your word that you are faithful to forgive. And that we, if we would just humble ourselves through repentance and faith, will see a greater worship and hope in you and that that is a hope and a crown that is unperishing and unfading holy spirit do what only you can do right now in our hearts which is convict us of sin and grant us repentance so we might worship you You are so worthy thank you for your son father i thank you for the men and women of this church and the ways that they seek to serve and make much of you humble us lord and give us perseverance to resist satan so that we might not be robbed of joy but instead worship and hope in you and you alone and may that testimony be declared in Gainesville, may it be declared in North Florida, may it be declared across this entire state, may it be declared in our nation, and may it be declared to the ends of the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord and King.